kind of cramming it into one uh, morning was a little bit uh, of a zealous task, I suppose. But this morning we're back in our text of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 2, and we're going to go from verse 18 through the close of the chapter in verse 26. Um, one announcement I did want to say now so that I don't um, forget it is that um, because we are leaving for teen camp next Sunday, Brittany and myself will not be here. We'll be meeting at the church, and then we'll be leaving from here. Um, but the good news is Matt Eineke is going to be preaching next Sunday morning. I'm very excited for that. I'm looking forward to that. Um, so all of you are going to get the uh, privilege of being able to hear from Matt Eineke and what the Lord has been putting on his heart to share with us um, for this next week. And I'm going to need everybody to take good notes and pay attention because I won't be here to hear it. So we're going to have to make sure uh, we know what's going on. But I'm very excited for that and thankful that Matt is so willing to do so. Um, just in case you guys show up next week and are like, Matt's gone, but Matt's here, and I'm confused. It's Matt, but it's a different Matt. This new one's more handsome. Can we have this one always? Yeah. Everyone said, aw, but no one disagreed, so... Take that. Let's move on. All is vanity, I guess. Yeah, it wasn't even you this time. It's incredible. Um, but I am looking forward to that. Um, but this morning, here we are in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 2, verses 18 down through 26. We're going to continue with a little bit of where we've been. Um, again, this idea all being vanity. And we're going to see again here in a few minutes just this progression of where we have been. But first, I wanted to start by reading a few lyrics from a song. It's an old song, and I'd be curious if any of you actually recognize it. Some of you astute uh, musicians and great fans of music are like keenly focused to see, will I know this? Uh, the opening four lines, it begins, up every morning just to keep a job. I got to fight my way through the hustling mob. Sounds of the city pounding in my brain while another day goes down the drain. Does anybody remember this at all? Is this familiar to anybody? Okay, younger people, I knew you had no shot. I only know this because there's a thing called the internet, right? Um, it's a song by the Vogues. It's from back in 1965 called Five O'Clock. What would you think it was? Yeah, 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 five, right. Five O'Clock World, right? And the reason that I'm, in, I'm starting off with this song is think about where we've been in Ecclesiastes. I know that we were last in it two weeks ago. But here it's starting off with up every morning just to keep a job. Got to fight my way through the hustling mob. Sounds of the city pounding in my brain while another day goes down the drain. The lyrics to this song capture the futility and the frustration of just kind of working on the job. You're up one day. You're doing the work. End of the day, the day's over, you go home, you got to deal with all this stress, all the anxiety, it's a routine. Again, this sick, cyclical idea, and you're right back at it again, and it's as if nothing was even accomplished, nothing was achieved. This song is carrying this absolute idea of futility and frustration of working on the job. Here where we've continued and we've seen as Solomon and the preacher, as he's writing through Ecclesiastes, we're going to just backtrack just for a minute to kind of catch us up to speed. Uh, first, he entered out to find meaning of things under the sun. He explored wisdom and folly, and folly. And what was his conclusion? All is vanity. Then he said, okay, I've observed long enough. Now I need to partake. I need to enter into an experience. So now I have to go and pursue these pleasures. I'm going to pursue the pleasures of the flesh to find meaning in this world. And his conclusion, yet again, all is vanity. His third step was then to create and to make all of these incredible things. He built himself gardens and, and a palace, and he built all these magnificent, marvelous things, and he concluded, all is vanity. And then he entered again where we closed two weeks ago by doing what we all do when we've lost something. We go back to where it should have been and go back to where we started, and he reexamines yet again wisdom and folly and once again concludes, all is vanity. So much so that his conclusion where we were two weeks ago in verse 17, he says, therefore I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And we said that he didn't even just say, I hate 
my life. My life is boring. My life is repetitive. My life is the same thing over and over and over. He's saying life in general, the totality of life, the very existence that we have in this time is vanity. It's meaningless. It's worthless. And that's his conclusion. And so for those of you that have been very weary throughout many weeks of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2, you should start to get a little bit excited for the last 15 minutes of this morning because he's going to say a positive statement. We're actually going to get something positive after almost two months of seeing how he's walked through these things. So let's read verses 18 through 26. Yea, I hated all my labor, which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man who shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun? This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this time with a desire to receive your word as it is written, as we understand that these words that we read are from the very mouth of God as it's been inspired and breathed out to us. We thank you for the giving of your revelation, the giving of your word, and this incredible privilege to be able to have praised you with so many in this congregation this morning, to be praising you as so many others in the church are, are doing in different places all over the world. God, I pray that as we see these words of Scripture, that we would truly receive them as your words and not the words of any other man. God, I ask that you would truly impress upon our hearts that which you have sought to reveal to us and that we would give you all praise and honor and glory this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you catch the positive that we saw in these texts? Did you catch it? If not, we're going to get there. I was just, don't spoil it for everybody else. Though. Okay. Uh, so, so we saw verse 17. He, he concluded, therefore I hated life. Everything that is under the sun, it's vanity, it's meaningless, it's worthless, it's not going to last. And again, under the sun, removing God from the equation, simply looking at the earthly, at the temporal, and at the material, saying, if this is all that there is, then I've hated life, and all is vanity. He continues with this hatred for these things in verse 18. He says, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it, unto the man that shall be after me. Here he is, he's talking about all of his labor. Some of us hate all of our labor. We don't enjoy our labor. It's a very difficult thing. It's very rough. It's very um, difficult and hard for so many of us, and we may not necessarily like it. And here he says he hates all of his toil and his work under the sun. He doesn't enjoy it, but yet we know many people where they find great value simply in their work. He's talking about this understanding, how he hates it all under the sun, because I should leave it to the man that shall be after me. When the first, the first question that's often asked to a man when we introduce ourselves, if I were to say, hi, I'm Matt, someone else tells me their name, what do you think is the initial question that people tend to give back in response? You guys have all had this conversation. What do you do? 
What do you do is always the first question after the introduction of a name. Because we inherently attribute our value to our work. That's what men do. We find our value in our work. It's commonly understood that our value is going to be placed in what it is that we do. And for a woman, it's often understood. Now, maybe less so now than it was maybe back when the Vogues were hitting the top of the charts with 5 O'Clock World in 1965. But often the question is about the family or if they have kids or about the husband. It's more about the home. It's more about their identity being tied in to this understanding of a family. But so frequently, the first question that men receive is, what do you do? As if each and every one of us as individuals are simply identified by our work. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? There's great problems when we find value attached to a job. One of them being, what if you lose that job? Now, where have you placed your value or your identity? This often happens. There's a few different problems that we have with work. The first one being that people undervalue work. Work isn't appreciated in the way that it should be anymore, where work is simply viewed as a bad thing. And I know this comes off as weird as a 27-year-old saying, young kids these days don't understand the value of work. Especially if you knew me prior to, well, almost Colorado, but a little bit of Indiana, right? First 18 years of my life, horrifically undervalued work. I wanted no part of it. I wasn't even, I was never called to, I wasn't required to, so why would I work? For what? I don't need to. I greatly undervalued this in the innate value of work. Now, on the other side, there's many of us who overvalue work, where our value, again, is simply tied into the work that we do, how much of it we can do. How many of us are familiar with someone who might be considered a workaholic? All of us know a person that works way too much. Some of us are people that work way too much. And I've talked about it before, how often the American idea, because we're like the busiest nation in the world, by the way, we associate busyness with being productive. How many of us are really good at being super busy, but never getting anything done? You do so many things. You're constantly, this is, yeah, it's called parenting also, right? <laughs> it's cleaning the house. Brittany put her hand up and that just made me think about that. Right? You clean up the house. You spend a couple hours. You're cleaning everything. It looks great. You go to the bathroom. You come out. Explosion. Right? Everything is ruined. That's vanity right there. Okay? That was a side note. I should have been over here for that. That's not where to go. Okay? But we understand work, people overemphasize work to a great extent to where we find our value in it so much where it's this point of pride to say, well, I worked this many hours completely missing the entire point of work. Whether you worked eight hours or 18 hours, does that raise your value? Absolutely not. We can work very, very hard and still not be productive. There's a third problem with associating our value or identity to work, and that's we have anxiety from our insecurity on the job. If we are not the owner of the business that we are working for, any day we could be out of the job. How many people work today in just America without any job security? A lot of people. Every day, the anxiety over either not having a job or being unstable in the job or having insecurity about the job that you do have. There's great struggles with this. Another, for those that maybe own, the that actually have their own business, you can start to begin to view employees as merely there for their economic production. Where there's employers who simply, who may have started a business for a very specific purpose, and yet over time, the employees no longer are people with families and lives and all these different things, but they're just part of the machine. They just produce. They're just like a hamster running on a wheel. And we know how this works. We've seen this. This is often the criticism of corporations, isn't it? They just treat them like they're not even actually people. But this is so often, how, and how easy that it is for this to happen. There's a great issue with identifying yourself simply to your work. And here he is saying that he hates all of his labor, which he has taken under the sun. And then he tells us why with two different things. The first thing being that someone else is going to profit. 
He is going to do all of this work and somebody else is going to profit from it. But this is the life of an employee, is it not? If, you're, if you work in sales, you, you're going to get a commission, but mostly the profit is going to go to who? To the business, right? You're not going to see any of it. You work for Nike. You're selling their products. You're making money for Nike. And you, you get something, but largely the profit is not for you. It's going to go to somebody else. He says that I hated all of my labor, which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. He's saying that one day when he died, he is going to leave it all behind. I mean, think about this. He's saying, I'm, going, I'm working so hard. I'm doing all of this labor under the sun, and I hate it because I don't even get to take it with me. I'm doing all of this, and the person that comes after me is going to reap the benefits. They're going to have all the reward from it. An, an incredible misunderstanding of this work, which we're going to get to, but think about it. If that's truly the perspective, that there is nothing more past this idea of under the sun. If there is no God, if when we die, that is the absolute end of it, all of your labor is essentially for the person that comes after you. You're going to leave it for them, and that's it. And so he is saying that he hates all of this. And he continues in verse 19 to say, And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored. And wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. He says, who even knows who will profit or receive all that we have accrued? It could be a wise man or it could be a fool. He's saying, it's, it's bad enough I'm leaving it for somebody else. But what if a fool gets all of my stuff? I'm working this hard for a fool to take this? Think about it for a minute. Think about if you worked for 50 straight years and you leave something behind to a fool who's just going to squander it all. Isn't this one of the great fears of any parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle to leave behind an inheritance? You've, you know how hard that you've worked for it. And all you want is for them to not waste it, right? Because the idea is you want them to be better off than you were, to not have to work as hard as you did. This is what I heard constantly from my parents growing up. The problem is I didn't appreciate their work because I never did any. So it's one thing to say, I work this hard so that you don't have to. That's a lot of what I heard, which is why I undervalued work, because I didn't actually understand the sacrifice that it was to work hard. I didn't understand what it really meant. I didn't understand really um, how difficult money was to come by for a while. It's just not something I thought about. It's not something that plagues my mind. We're now trying to work through this with our kids to the extent that a six-year-old and a four-year-old can understand it. It's difficult. You, when they waste things, I'm finding myself to be older and older every day of, you don't understand. We, money is not just everywhere. You can't just have it. You have to work for it. It's not just available just because you want to. And I'm aging very, very quickly. But here he's saying he hates all of his labor under the sun because I'm going to leave it behind, and who even knows who's going to get it? It could be a wise man, or it could be a fool. And let's be honest, the chances are eventually a fool is going to have it. Eventually, a person is going to come along and squander all that he has left behind. Let's see verses 20 and 21. It says, Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all of the labor which I took under the sun, for there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. Do you see how entitled he feels in regards to his own work? This understanding that it's all for me, I'm working so hard for all of this, and I'm now going to leave it to a person who hasn't worked hard at all? It's vanity and it's a great evil. Why should they gain from my work? Who here wants someone else to take credit for their work? If we work so hard at something, we build, we design, we make something, we want the credit, don't we? That's why there's laws against stealing from other people. 
So we, we so greatly want the ownership and we want the credit for our own work. But here he makes it very clear in the way that he's discussing this that he believes work is all for himself. Remember back in verses 4 through 9 here in chapter 2, everything that he had made, every single thing that he made, he was going to leave it behind, right? He wasn't taking his gardens with him after he died. He wasn't going to be able to take all the gold and the silver and the choir and all of this magnificent, beautiful things that he had created. It was all going to stay, and he was leaving it behind for a person who didn't work hard for that. And there was a very specific person he left it behind for, and it was one of his sons. You guys remember who it was? Rehoboam. Wise man or a fool? Fool. Think about it. Here he's, he's writing this out, and it's all this kind of almost self-fulfilling concept here as he's writing it out. I'm leaving it behind for a person, and who knows that that person's going to be a wise man or a fool. He's leaving it behind for his own son, who Scripture is very clear in telling us was a fool. 1 Kings chapter 12 tells us he lost ten-twelfths, or five-sixths, for those of you that like smaller fractions, of the kingdom that Solomon had accrued and amassed. One generation, ten-twelfths, or five-sixths, of the kingdom completely lost. How much did Solomon have to lose? A tremendous amount. And yet, ten-twelfths of it is squandered by the fool who was actually his own son. So he's not saying anything that's wrong. He had, I understand his fear. I'm working this hard, and who knows if it's even going to be taken care of. I'm going to leave this behind for my son, and I don't know if he's going to be wise or foolish with it. And if we're being honest, that's a fear that many of us have. If we're leaving something behind for another, our greatest hope is that they actually make a wise use of it. Or else we would just burn the money ourselves. Yet, here he is, he passes it on to his son, whose scripture, again, is very clear, is a fool. And I find it fascinating, and as we sang in our the last song that we did here this morning, the, the question that's asked there, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Solomon's perspective is, they don't deserve the reward for all of my labor, right? And we would say, yeah, of course, you're the one that deserves it. But as we're singing that song, why should I gain from his reward? Is that not exactly what the gospel is? We gain from his reward. And we, we gain not because we've deserved it. It's not our reward. It was never ours at the very beginning. It is simply bestowed upon us by the very grace of God. Why is that the case? Can't really give an answer other than because God himself sought to do so. That's why it's a beautiful gift. And yet Solomon's contrast under the sun is, I did all the work. I deserve all the credit. I deserve all the rewards. I'm the only one that should be allowed to enjoy it. Because what if these guys after me squander it? What if they waste it? Then all of my labor is done in vain. Because this is the conclusion of a worldview that simply remains under the sun. Again, he constantly is bringing this back in all the language of under the sun, right? God is removed. This is all that there is in this time. So truly, what value is there? We're going to leave it behind and it could be wasted. The logical conclusion is what he says here, to hate it and to say it's meaningless. Because if I can't enjoy it forever, then it's not worth anything. If I can't always have it, if I can't always have the rewards or the pleasures of it, then what's the point of doing it at all? That's the only conclusion that you can come to with the worldview simply under the sun. The future isn't even considered because, hey, I won't be around for it, right? So it doesn't matter. The conclusion is to simply consume and to enjoy and to build up, and we'll see that again. There's obviously lots of conversation now, and Brittany and I were talking about this um, a little bit last night and how there's the big movement now, I can't believe I'm saying this in church, to save the turtles, right? You guys are all familiar? You guys familiar with the save the turtles idea? Right? Okay. Super popular. Starbucks, big thing. Okay. Save the turtles. And the big public conversation for the last 10 to 20 years has been saving the environment, right? Taking care of the environment, all these different things, which 
should we, Christian worldview, still be good stewards and take care of the environment? Absolutely. But it's interesting for those that have a simply under-the-sun worldview to push so hard for the protection of an environment when there is nothing after. They believe that after death there isn't anything. What then is the motivation for me? Let's assume that I do not believe in anything after death. That once I die, everything is completely done. Why do I have any concern or care at all for what happens to the planet after I die? I don't even get to enjoy if it's around. And if it's not around, I don't care. And we could say, well, you know, what about, you know, your children or what about people still care about all these other um, people that are going to come after them. Um, But it's not a common good argument. It's not this idea about common good because the same culture which says save the turtles is a culture which openly supports what? Thank you. So you guys are all on the exact same page. Thank you. It's not a common good argument. You cannot say we support the murder of babies and then say, but we have to save the turtles and the environment for the common good of those that are going to come after us. Because we've already said we don't want anyone to come after us. We've chosen ourselves rather than anything to come in the future. It's a selfish standing point. And so here, again, this is the logical conclusion. Again, with everything, as you guys sit through this, as you walk through Ecclesiastes, as you hopefully are reading it on your own as well, you walk through the viewpoints and try to carry them out to their conclusions. Because his conclusion is right, if only under the sun is true. If this is all that there is, he is absolutely right. It is meaningless. But as Christians... We know something very, very different. Tolstoy wrote about this and in a very similar way. comes to the same conclusion. He writes, What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? How many of you are encouraged when you see this kind of writing? Because all of the more famous authors that we read about in high school and in middle school and in college, this is their conclusion almost unanimously. As they continue to write, as they continue to observe, and they continue to look at things completely separated from God, all of their conclusions become fatalistic and say, why am I even doing anything? But yet they still sit there and continue to write about it. As if it's a sort of therapy to write about how meaningless everything is. And so here, and again, he writes this, Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Notice, he's very aware that the death that is awaiting him is going to destroy everything. He's not, there's not a denial of a forthcoming death. We've all experienced it. We're all very aware of it. It's the thing that so many people fear the most. But he's saying, is there any meaning that this death is not going to destroy? Turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. And I want us all to turn there. It's familiar verses, but I want us to see how beautiful this is and to note the contrast with what is so popularly understood. The simple question of, is there anything that this death does not destroy? 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Notice how great of a contrast that it is. Tolstoy asking the question, is there any meaning in life that this inevitable death does not destroy? First Peter very clearly says, oh yeah, there's an inheritance where death can't destroy it, rust can't destroy it, moth can't get there. It is incorruptible and it will not fade away and it is reserved in heaven for you. 
And as I tend to do, even though it's not always connected, but I just love it, verses 5 through 7, he continues to say, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. And notice verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Does that give you a different perspective on the trials that you may face in this time? More precious than of gold and of silver? We often think that there's no greater security in life than gold. Every time I watch every now and then Fox Business or I'm checking stock markets or checking all these different things and my dad's calling me and saying, hey, this is up eight cents today. It's super exciting because he made like $12, right? Gets really excited about it. And it's, you, all, you constantly hear the safest thing is gold, right? Gold, gold, gold. You hear all of this stuff and you feel great security. The person with the most money feels the greatest amount of security, right? Peter's very clear. Gold will perish. The gold will go away. We are to receive an inheritance that is incorruptible. And a question this morning, because it, it pairs so well with what it is that he is doing here. Solomon is writing about this labor under the sun, saying that it's all going to go away right after I die. We see Peter outlining that gold is going to go away, but we are receiving an inheritance that is reserved for us in heaven one that will last far past this inevitable death that we are all going to face one day. And a simple question as we look to these two differing views is, which inheritance are you investing in most prominently? Which inheritance are you investing in most prominently? Because we spend so much time, so much stress, so much anxiety trying to accrue an inheritance, not even just for ourselves, displace it for a moment, to pass on to our children to where they can pay for college, they'll have a car, all of these different material things that we so actively pursue and try to build up for them. And we spend countless hours pairing that with how many hours we're investing in their spiritual inheritance, in the inheritance that is going to go past their college, past their death, and past the grave. Because I think an honest reflection is there is a great disparity in the time that is spent building towards the heavenly inheritance and trying to build them with the tools and equipping them with an understanding of who God is, of what righteousness is, of justification, of redemption, of all of these things that are so important to understand because we keep hammering, save up for college, save for retirement. And then in the back, we say, oh, yeah, we just left church on Sunday. By the way, make sure that we're pursuing heavenly things. Keep an eye on the things of heaven. The time balance is not even close. Because nothing in the world is telling you, maybe don't worry so much about all the college things and, you know, actually spend time with your kids. Pray with them. Read to them. Talk to them about who God is. That's not on TV. I understand that. That's not in the music. I understand that. But how much time? Now, before you guys hear me say, so I shouldn't save anything or try to help my kids, that's absolutely not what I'm saying. But make sure we keep a proper balance of which inheritance is going to go past the grave. But I also want to keep it in mind that we feel very comfortable leaving behind money or finances or resources for our kids because we can actually give that to them, right? We cannot give them the inheritance that only God can give. So I understand the pull to, but I want to prepare my kids for this. I want to prepare the next generation for these things. The way that we build in and that we put payments down for this inheritance is by instructing them in the word of God, by training them up in these ways, by building a foundation where God is at the forefront. All of scripture being clear. And that may require sacrifices. I understand that. Many of you understand and have experienced those things. But a simple question of which inheritance are you investing in more prominently? Are you encouraging your children? 
in encouraging the next generation to pursue this earthly inheritance now or to focus more heavily on that which goes beyond this inevitable death that can destroy all of it. Because everyone is going to die. I know none of us like it, but it's true. None of us know a single person that's never going to die. I don't think. I'm confident about that. Maybe Tayson. I don't know. Could be wrong. But he continues now, as he goes into verse 22 and 23, he continues on, he says, For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? So he's saying, what do you even have? Because as he says in verse 23, for all of his days are sorrow and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. He says, there's not even rest for the worker. Because even at night, He's anxious over it. The idea of no rest for the weary. Those of you that often work and work and work, does it ever really get out of your mind? There's constant thoughts of it. There's constant anxiety. There's constant weary. The worker is always weary. Do I have enough time to get it all done? Do I have enough help to be able to get it done? Do I have enough energy to get it all done? This goes for employee and employer. Can I do it? Constantly asking that question, is it even possible? The weariness doesn't go away. Here he's saying, all this labor under the sun, your days are filled with sorrow and your travail is grief because the heart doesn't take rest in the night. So he concludes, all the labor under the sun is what? Vanity. Breathe for a second. About to have a, a complete change in the language here. Verse 24. It's our very first positive thing in 24 and 25. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. Notice, God is finally brought into the picture here. He's finally bringing this about. For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? See, this is the turning point for all of Ecclesiastes where now he's going to enter in to a greater understanding of the things of God. And he's going to change the perspective. And so many of you should give a full hearty amen because I know you and I know that, that when it's negative like this, you're kind of like, I don't like that. But now he understands it. This is the turning point. So, uh, one commentator put it that this is an oasis of optimism in the wilderness of despair. And I think that's absolutely right. That wilderness of despair, I think, is Moab in July, by the way. <laughs> and getting back home was an oasis of optimism. That was a, That's in the Greek. Um, but Martin Luther even believed that this was the principal conclusion in the whole book. And I love verse 25, and as this close of chapter 2, where he is now saying, For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? And understanding what he's going to say in verse 26. In all of these things, he is now beginning to shine light on the difference that joy comes directly from the hand of God. This was not a person who has never considered a pursuit of joy, who didn't know where to look for it, he was aware, but sought the pleasures that are under the sun. He sought the physical pleasures. He sought to manifest this glory for himself and what he could build and work and create, even in his own wisdom. And notice how every time he talks about his wisdom, he keeps saying, I kept it the whole way, even though I was doing really ridiculous, absurd things. And how in every single case, he's very proud. It's very arrogant, as if he's done nothing wrong. And who else could figure this out if I can't? If I can't find the meaning... Nobody else could. But now he's shining light on the difference of the man who does his labor, understanding from the very hand of God, that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. There's a great difference from our labor when we're seeking pleasure or gifts for ourselves rather than viewing the joy of 
of the eating and of the drinking and of the work as a gracious gift from God. There's a great difference that takes place here. And one of those gifts, sad to say it, is work. Work is a gift. If you notice, if you go back into Genesis, the command to work, was it before or after the fall? It's before. Woof. I went to seminary for that, right? We don't like that idea. I loved being able to grow up and say, ha, see, all that work stuff, that's just the curse of the fall, and we have to work because we're guilty, and we go through all of these things. No, Adam was created in the garden with the purpose to work and to maintain and to provide care over all that was created, also to keep out any enemies. He was to labor So that didn't change your perspective a little bit. Hopefully that it does. Work is one of these gifts. It is an ordinance of creation. That there is something good that God gives us as we work. Was there not even just this idea of work and creation in the six days? Now, was it difficult for God to make these things? Absolutely not. But he rested. There was work. We are called to work, and this is pre-fall, so we don't get to get, sit back and say, well, I can hate my job because this is a post-fall job or work and all this. We cannot use that as an excuse. But here he begins to have this understanding and this turning point where he's starting to see, oh, you can enjoy good in your labor, seeing it as he did as a gift from the very hand of God. Consider your work, whatever it may be, paid, volunteer, whatever the work is. Do you consider that as a gift from the very hand of God? Imagine a town, just your workplace even, if every individual there considered their work as a gift from the very hand of God. Would the morale among the employees be different? Would the quality of work be different? Would the attitude and spirits of everybody that's there, the interactions with one another, the way that you do everything about it completely changes? Because I'm no longer as a Christian working for just my boss. Who ultimately am I working for? For God. There's fruits to our labor, but one of those fruits isn't just the reward for our labor, the paycheck or the increased relationships, whatever the interaction is, but one of the fruits of our labor is the actual labor. Again, this is greatly in contrast where we view work as a necessary evil in life. That's so much, and again, I repeatedly come back to this. This is how I undervalued work. I said, no, he just wants, they just want me to work because I'm supposed to, because everybody else has to. That's why we all have to do it. I'm going to try to find a way without working. Right, right. I was younger, okay? It didn't work. Now see what he says here in verse 26. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. Notice every way that he has talked about wisdom prior to this, it was of himself. The wisdom that he himself has. Now he's attributing wisdom to God is giving to the man who is good in his sight wisdom. Wisdom is now understood rightly as a gift from God. This is not a man who didn't know how he got the wisdom he holds. Right? If you're, you remember the story of, again, this, this conversation, he's having this, and God comes to him, and I'm not going to draw it all, all the way out, but we have this understanding where Solomon asks, the Lord for wisdom, right? He says, I have this kingdom. I have no idea of how to rule it. Please, Lord, give me wisdom. And he receives wisdom. And immediately, it starts to turn. After doing, a little, doing well for a little bit, he then says, I am pretty wise. I am pretty smart. I mean, look at everything that I have. How great am I? Where that wisdom now turns to pride. But here, he rightly understands wisdom as a gift from God. Then he notes the contrast. 
But to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. The sinner's life and work is simply acquiring and consuming that which he's going to ultimately turn over to another. The person apart from God does not receive an inheritance, doesn't receive a reward for this labor of wisdom and knowledge and joy, but simply the person under the sun that does all of their labor, to the sinner the Lord hath given travail for it to simply be passed around. And who knows whether that to be a wise person or a foolish person. So here he even is kind of going back to himself where he sees the contrast and at the close of verse 26 is explaining exactly the indictment of the person under the sun. The reward for our labor, again, is the labor itself as, long, as well as the fruit. So why then does the Christian work? Why then would I labor? If I'm not just simply building up these things for myself, why am I to work? Well, we see it's an ordinance of creation, and we see that we are commanded to work. We also see it being a very, very good thing. But here as we talk about work, I want to step aside off to no longer the work for a paycheck, but why does the Christian labor in their, in their salvation? Why does the Christian serve or minister to anyone? Is it all for vain? Is it all just meaningless? Is it all futile anyways? Because it's not going to have any effect. But the Christian works knowing that Christ has already done the work, all of it, for salvation. Do you labor each and every day? Do you serve? Do you minister? Do you do the things that you do in service to God in order to accrue or to build up? Or do you do so because you know it's overflowing already. The blessings have already been received, have already been forgiven. All of these things are absolutely true. Therefore, I work because of what Christ himself has already done. Because you're never going to be able to stop working if you're working for salvation. In Philippians, we saw the text of work out your salvation. That's very different than work for your salvation. You will be working forever and never finding it if we are working for salvation. But the Christian works and works as unto the Lord because we know that Christ has already done all the work for salvation. That's why there's joy in your work. Because it's not in order to just say, hey God, I, I want to look favorable before you, so I'm going to work and do well so that maybe you know, if I do well enough, then salvation can be uh, blessed upon me. No, but we do so in service to him out of thanks and out of gratitude. And in closing, Luther said this, The entire world should be full of service to God, not only the churches, but also the home, the kitchen, the cellar, the workshop, and the field. I know we talked a lot about our the work that we do for finances and the work that we have where there is going to be a paycheck, and we look at it simply in those terms. But the labor that is done within the home, or the classroom, or the kitchen, or even the work of hospitality, of bringing someone into your home for those things, the labor that a man or a woman does in the study and of reading, these are things that are to be done to the very glory of God, and that it is not in vain. But that all of creation, that all of the world should be full of service to God. This is why we don't just find value in our work. There's so many drawbacks to it, but in all of these things, in every area of service and of life and of work, we do so in service to God. Because why else would any of you get up every day, do the same routine, do the same job, do everything that is hard and labor for so many years if there's no point to it? What a hopeless and fatalistic sense that that is. But when you are doing your work, whether it is in the home or in the field, wherever it is in any circumstance, when you're doing it for the joy that God has set before you, to praise him and to serve him because of that joy, 
how differently you work, how much more beautiful of a gift it is to work as unto the Lord. And Solomon's going to start to continue to unfold so many more of these right understandings of things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of work. We thank you for the gift of being able to not just labor individually in service to you, but that you have called us to labor one with another, that as your people and as your church, we are to be laborers in service to you as we do so together, and that scripture counts us as co-laborers with Christ, that we to receive an inheritance that we, that though we did not deserve, that Christ was fully deserving of, that he was ordained to have before the very creation of the world. But Lord, we praise you and are so thankful that as we understand the redemption and the salvation that you have given to those who believe upon the work of your Son, that we are allowed access, that we are allowed this incredible blessing and possession of the inheritance that you had reserved for your Son. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us here, as we see this, these ideas of inheritance and that which we leave behind, I do pray that we would absolutely be in pursuit of the inheritance which is eternal, that we would pursue you, that we would be seeking as we look to be passing things on to the next generation, that we wouldn't simply keep it to passing on a knowledge of how finances are to work and how to be diligent in all these different areas, but that we would absolutely find a great investment in the teaching and the affection of your word for those that are going to come after us. That those are the inher- That's the inheritance that will continue on past this inevitable death that will come to us all. God, we rejoice in the hope that though there is death here in this time, that those who have believed upon you and who trust in the work of your Son and your Son alone for salvation that there is no condemnation in Christ, that there is no death, that because of your son's death and resurrection, that we too, for those who have trusted and believed upon him, are raised to newness of life, to forever be in your presence, and to be able to share in these things, one with another, as well as with Christ, as we have been saved and brought into the family of God by a spirit of adoption. What a beautiful truth that it is to be adopted into your family. God, we thank you for the giving of your word. We thank you for the incredible gift of grace that it is that you have given it to us as we were wholly undeserving of being able to see you as you are. But we look forward to the day where we enter into glory and we are able to look upon your very face and how beautiful and how majestic and how in awe we are truly going to be in all that you are. God, we love you, we praise you, and thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. As Mrs. Pace plays here just for a moment.